March 19th. That is the date that the book that we are going to be talking about on this podcast episode is going to release. It is called The Passion Paradox. It's by Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus, two friends of mine. They're also uh, the authors of Peak Performance. Many of you guys have read that. It's been pretty cool. Usually whenever I saw somebody post something about conscious coaching, uh, Peak Performance was right alongside that in some of your guys' Instagram pictures, and that was just kind of surreal, especially because uh, Brad and Steve were, were huge in regards to giving me advice when I was a clueless first-time self-published author. So to be able to share that space with them was huge. You guys are going to love this episode. Uh, The passion paradox is something that I think is overdue. And while we've heard people talk about the importance of passion for a long time, you'd be surprised at how it can misguide you, how it can mislead you. Uh, Some of you might already know a little bit about this because if you're on my newsletter about a week ago, you got a uh, early pre-order form. You got some other freebies that Brad and Steve uh, sent along with it. So thank you to those of you that are on the newsletter. Hoping you guys are finding value in that because those PDFs and everything they did are are a ton of added value. If you guys want to get on that newsletter, really simple, just artofcoaching.com backslash start artofcoaching.com backslash start uh I, one cool thing about it guys is it just comes out once monthly you know i don't bug you uh, i try to give you some of the best resources and articles from uh that other people have put out and then some ones that i've enjoyed uh, along with that that uh, i think have really helped me get over some sticking points and then also some stuff that i've done that you maybe won't find me sharing on social media you might not find me talking about on the podcast so again artofcoaching.com backslash start. Let me know what you think of this episode. We're going to dive in right now. World-class athletes, great coaches. What do they do when they're at their best? We don't take no for an answer. We don't take no for an answer. We don't take no for an answer. Leave no doubt tonight. Leave no doubt tonight. No doubt! We're gonna get him on the run, boys! Once we get him on the run, we're gonna keep him on the run! And then we're gonna go, 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 go! And we're not gonna stop until we get across that goal line! Now you kids are probably saying to yourselves, hey, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna get the world by the tail and wrap it around and pull it down and put it in my pocket! What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Art of Coaching podcast. I'm joined today by my two friends, Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. Guys, what's going on? Hey, Brad. Good to be on the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. I love it because before the show, I was asking these guys how they wanted to be introduced, just making sure I did my due diligence appropriately. We all know what it's like when, whether you have a last name mispronounced or somebody, I remember I was on a podcast and somebody said, hey, you're still with X company, right? And that was like half a decade ago. Um, But these guys are so humble that the main thing they said is, hey, we write books and coach executive athletes. And we've both been involved in the running world for quite a while. So they're being, they're probably being a bit too modest. And guys, I'll let you fill in any gaps. But is there anything you kind of want to give the audience some insight to around your background before we dive in? Steve, I'll let you lead off. Oh, okay. Got it. Um, so my background, as you kind of alluded that there is, is running. So I was a, I was a relatively high performer in running and then got into coaching and have been fortunate enough to coach, um, athletes at the collegiate level. And then also pro- professional level had guys qualify for Olympics, all that stuff. Actually just had a guy get a bronze medal at the world or at the European championships. So that's top of my, my mind. So it's a, awesome thing but you know the main thing that i do beyond coaching is is write books and we've got this uh a new book coming out called the passion paradox which uh you know i'm sure we'll get into absolutely brad yeah so um what steve said with the exception that most of my coaching practice focuses on um, entrepreneurs executives and physicians so i work with people outside of sport on improving their performance um and while, um, while I love coaching, I also love writing and um, I write for Outside Magazine. I write essays all over the place. And my best work has been my work with Steve. So our first book, Peak Performance, and now this book, Passion Paradox. Yeah, and I think that the interesting thing about this and why it's timely is 
one of the things that I've been talking to a lot of coaches about recently is burnout and, you know, passion, you guys allude to it early on common advice is to find and follow your passion, you know, but that's not always the best advice, right? Like we have these heuristics and rules of thumb and, and these things that we think make people successful, but Brad in particular, especially in regards to your own personal experience, how has passion kind of derailed you at times? Or maybe how has passion in, in kind of following that rabbit hole and we're diving in here, uh, maybe misguided you during times of your personal or professional life? Oh man, how long do you have? That's why we wrote the book. Um, we, we, we got as long. This is, this is, I mean, yeah. And I, I mean, but that's what I want. Yeah. I want people, the, the book's going to be great, but people want to know exactly kind of what, what totally. made you want to write this from your perspective and then later Steve's. Totally. So um, the, 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 I think the backstory on how this book came to be is probably the best way to address this question. So Steve and I had written Peak Performance together, um, our first book with a major publishing house. And we finished the book and we thought we were going to get edits back. I think it was like the month of August. So we scheduled two weeks to be in person together. Steve lives in Houston. I live in Oakland. Uh, so different states. And our publisher was running a little bit behind. So we didn't have the edits. So we had literally just finished this book with a major publishing house, got a book deal, got an advance. And instead of like partying or going on long hikes, which maybe we should have done, we said, well, shit, like, let's start writing the next book. And then we looked at each other and like, what's wrong with us? Like, why can't we just be content? Why are we already having to start the next thing? We just, we, we, we've not even finished the first one. This is a milestone and we're already thinking about the next one. We can't help ourselves. And then we looked at each other again and we're like, wow, like maybe we should write a book about this. Because a lot of the coaching clients that I work with, outside of sport, and certainly the athletes that Steve works with, they have this temperament that we've come to call pushers. So people that just push, 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 that can't be content, that want to go, go, go. And that temperament can be the best gift in the world, right? That's what like, that's how people write books and come up with vaccines and win Olympic medals. And in those moments, life can feel more meaningful than ever. But that same temperament and that same inability to be content can also become a curse. Because if you're constantly wanting the next thing or striving or thinking about the next thing, that can be a very like volatile emotional roller coaster. So that's the paradox of passion. Like it's this thing that can be the best asset and the most meaningful, energizing thing in your life. And at the same time, it can become a curse and it can be both things on the same day. Um, so yeah, like I, I, Steve, I don't know what you have to add, but it, it really like manifested in looking at ourselves. And uh, the last thing, I guess I have one more thing to add is that passion tends to be this very like value laden world, like find and follow your passionate. And if you're not passionate, you're doing it wrong or the opposite. Like, Ooh, passion is like this force and, and stay away from it. And we think that that's bullshit. Like passion is actually very nuanced and, 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 and it can be both of those things at once. And then the question is, if you recognize that you have a passionate temperament, if you're a pusher, well, how do you work with that in a way that is more productive than it is destructive? Yeah, and I just add that, and this is probably really relevant for your audience of, uh, of coaches and stuff, is that in the sporting world, like we almost build this in, right? We always have something else to like push towards, right? If we lose a game or lose a race, like there's always another one coming up. Or if we're in the off season, like we we sit there and say, all right, like I've got three months to get better so that, you know, next season I'm going to I'm going to turn this around and, you know, improve, improve, improve. And I think in a lot of ways, that's that's kind of unique uh, to athletes, although uh, executives as as Brad mentioned, feel that, but it's almost like ingrained in our culture. So as someone with a sporting background, like I always felt this right in my own running career, it was always like, okay, what's next. Um, in my own like coaching career, it was always like, okay, uh, how do I get better for the next season? Like what's the next goal on the horizon? Like I'm so almost goal focused that it's easy to get, lost in this world of uh, always pushing, 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 which I think, you know, gets to your first point, uh, Brett, is that that can also lead to this, like this feeling of burnout, right? Where 
you know, even if we're the most uh, mentally strong, tough person out there and most motivated person, like there's all, only so much fuel in the tank where we can just like put our head down and grind through these, you know, long days of uh, coaching and all that good stuff. Um, so it, it's just like a very personal thing to us. And uh, as Brad said, I like that's why we explored this topic. It's not because we had it figured out in the beginning. It's because you know, we're, we're struggling with it as well. And we figured, Hey, if, if we're two guys, uh, struggling with this aspect, like there's gotta be something to it. Yeah. And I think that makes, that brings up a really good point. You passion is not something you can, or in my opinion, should even talk about if you haven't experienced some kind of struggle, you know, and, and commitment and passion in my book have always kind of gone hand in hand with kind of this misinterpretation. And one of the things that I'd be interested in getting your take on, and Brad, we'll start with you first on this one and and then Steve. But, you know, when I looked at commitment, when I was going through some things, I tried to think about, you know, why do I go through this? Well, I know I'm I'm pretty fiercely committed if I say I'm going to do something, almost to the point where I got to be really cognizant of not falling into that kind of sunk cost fallacy where, you know, I've got to know when it really is time to walk away or I won't. And so when I looked up commitment, what the research showed, it was a 2013 article, is that there's three types. There's affective commitment, like affective, um, which is kind of wanting to stay with an organization or a task because you have this emotional attachment to it, a personal identification. In other words, you feel like you uh, do something or stay somewhere because you want to. There's a normative commitment. So that's a, a, like a feeling of a moral obligation. It could be influenced by social norms. It could be social comparison. That's kind of like, I feel like I ought to. And then there's continuance forms of commitment, which is like you feel stuck uh, or you're staying because it's too costly to leave, classic sunk costs. And that's like, I have to. If you look at these forms of commitment, like people doing things because they want to, or they feel like they ought to, or they feel like they have to, Brad, where do you think that passion paradox is most likely to oh, be represented. Yeah, Brad, great question. Like you're getting to the heart of it. Um, so I think that it, it it often starts out as someone doing something because they want to and they love the thing and it brings them joy or they feel like really mission or purpose driven. And then what ends up happening is you do well. So you start to get good results. And with good results, especially in today's day and age with social media, you get external validation. So people comment on your good work. And then suddenly, you can get more passionate about that external validation than the thing itself. And that's when you feel like, I need to do this. I need to tweet three times a day. I need to win this race. Um, I need to be known in my field because my whole ego, my whole passion is tied up in now what other people think, external validation. That's very different and doing an activity because you love the thing itself. Um, and again, it's not black or white. It's often, it, it can be both. And, and a lot of people start, in the, in the literature, this is the difference between harmonious and obsessive passion. A lot of people start harmonious. They're doing what they're doing because they love it and it's very purpose-driven. And then once they start to do well, they get sucked into obsessive passion. And uh, this this stuff lives on a spectrum. Like, I, I'm, I, I I'm curious to hear what Steve says in this moment, but I used to say that you want to be like 60% harmonious, 40% obsessive. Now I think that even like 55, 45 is good because we're humans. Like it feels good to do well. Of course you want to do well and external validation feels good. But if that becomes the primary reason that you're doing something, then you no longer have control. Um, and, and, and that's scary. Uh, you bring up a good point before we turn to Steve, just what, what you mentioned about external validation. It is funny because in the burnout literature, they literally talk about how people that go down that spiral, it's because of a lot of, they're really craving social reward. You know, it's not so much monetary, it's social reward and that validation of, am I amongst the best at what I do? And I see that in coaching a lot where people feel like they have got to coach at a major division one school, or they have got to be in the pro sport side of things, or they will not get the validation they seek. So Steve, I definitely want you to piggyback or, or kind of share your thoughts on what Brad talked about, but can you also talk about that, having worked with people who have meddled at extremely high levels, you know, 
What, what do you feel about that topic in particular? Yeah, you know, it, the funny thing is it's even harder to deal with now than even, say, five or ten years ago, right? Because, you know, five or ten years ago, if you did well at whatever it was you were doing, let's say you medaled at a major track and field championship, like that was important to you and to people who followed track. But if you, unless you like took the time to follow track, like no one else could could kind of look and evaluate that. But nowadays, in a in a hyper connected social media media a world, it becomes like the thing that is like associated with our our Twitter profile, right? Everybody can find and judge you, right? Everybody can look and say, "Oh, I'm gonna go see who this Brett Mar- Bartholomew guy is." Look at your your Twitter or Instagram, see how many followers you have, see what you've done, and like immediately judge you. So we're put in a position where even more so than probably any time in history, like we pay attention to those external validators. And that's, to me, a major problem. And if you look at some of the research, actually, is that um, young, uh, young adults and teens are having problems with what they call identity formation. So having like a very solid sense of who they are. Because they're constantly putting in this, uh, put in this world of comparison that is almost impossible to to win. And as you mentioned, like the more we fall into that line of like external validation need and like not having a firm sense of identity, the more we increase our chances of uh, having burnout and some of these negative things. Which I think gets to the the, the earlier point on your great paradigm there of having like, you know, want to, need to, have to, is I think eventually what happens is if if our identity gets so tied up in um, what we do, right, where we have to get these validation, then we transition into like almost a negative experience of I have to. Um, And you see this in, in runners a lot of times where they almost feel like addicted to running and it becomes like this, this negative thing so much so that at the end of a season, let's say, and they have, you know, their coach tells them to take a a week off, they'll actually get signs and symptoms of like withdrawal and, and depression because it's like, they don't have this like, oh, I have to do that. And I'm being told not to. So it's almost like, you know, coming off a, a, a drug addiction, which is just crazy in my mind. Yeah, it's a really interesting parallel. And it's funny how much so much of it also feeds into this kind of self-presentation. You were mentioning the expert and how people have access to anybody they want now. And I remember I had read a book it was called Presentation of Self in Everyday Life by Irving Goffman. I think it was written like 1955. And he had this line that I read one time that I really, I had to, you know, when you read a book and you have to go back and almost read something four or five times, not necessarily because you don't understand it, but more so because of how hard it hits you. You know, it just, he, he was talking about, there's this notion of face work where people construct and really want to project a certain image of themselves in order to leave a desired impression in the eyes of others. And, and we're not that, you know, that that's familiar, but this line in particular that was kind of repeated in this article is the central figure fig, or feature of a stigmatized individual situation in life is genuinely like to gain acceptance and or respect. But ironically, that's precisely what that kind of stigma puts at risk. The more you chase these things, whether it is because of an imbalance, because of harmonious and obsessive passion, or because of you chasing the wrong uh, social reward and you feel like you need to, it literally puts the very things you're looking to do as well as your personal and mental health at risk. I mean, is there a time, Brad, that you can remember really chasing after something that you thought was going to bring you some form of validation, even amongst fellow writers or, or anything like that, that you're just like you sat yeah, back man, and it happens every day. Well, not every day, like, but every I time I tweet. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, like that happens often, and I think that um, for for me, it is I I am totally like any other human. Like I crave validation, and even writing a book, like I want the book to do so well, and then I ask myself why I want the book to do well. And then I tell myself, well, because then I could, you know, I could get another book deal and Steve and I could keep writing books and, and I could have autonomy. 
And then I kind of think, well, like I have a lot of autonomy right now. Like if now is not good enough, then what's going to be good enough? Um, and then I kind of reflect on like, well, what do I really like about writing books? Yeah. And it's the research, it's the conversations I have with interesting people. Um, it's not like the actual book sales. And yes, I want to make a living doing it. So money's important, but like it doesn't have to be the number one bestseller in the world. And if it was, nothing in my life would change. When Peak Performance first came out, Steve and I um, somehow got convinced that the book had a really good chance at landing on the New York Times bestseller list. And for a week, we were freaking crazy about it. And I remember like the list publishes on a, on a Friday and Steve and I were sitting there like, you know, on texting, like when was the last time you uploaded the New York Times bestseller page? And I think this is important. Like, I want to be vulnerable. Like we're, we write about this stuff. We're experts in this. And like, it's really freaking hard not to do this. So there we are doing that. And we didn't get on the list. And I remember being like bummed for maybe two hours. And then after that whole storm passed, being like, that was fucking stupid. Like, I'm still married to my wife. I still love Steve. I'm still proud of the book. Still sold a bunch of copies. Like, who cares? But to that point, Brad, like, did it, and did you catch yourself doing this? And did you catch yourself looking at the list, seeing a book that was on there and be like, even just for a moment, be like, really? Totally. Like that um, book again, got like, on I there and mine didn't. Like, have you ever fallen into myself. that like, trap? That's normal. I just note it. I'm like, oh, like there I am comparing again. And then I get back to whatever it is I'm doing. Yeah. Cause like we're humans, we're never going to eliminate all this. <laughs> and I think like really experiencing that, um, it's almost like a bag drug high. Like that's how that week felt. And in, in this year, do I want to be on the list? Yeah. Absolutely. Am I going to sit there refreshing the New York Times website all week? Fuck no. Because like I had that bad drug high. Like it felt gross. <laughs> yeah, you're that dude in the wire that just injected up with a dirty needle. Steve, how about you in terms of that process? I, you know, uh, how, how does that affect you or what approach do you yeah, take? It, it, you know, it's interesting. I guess I'll talk in the sporting context a little bit. But yeah. in my coaching practice, like we call this fixating. Right. Where you get so fixated on like a goal or in, in running, like, you know, running a certain time or breaking a certain barrier because track and field is, is so raw. Like you're instantly, instantly judged. Like talk about knowing where you stand. Like you, you wear your, you know, you know, your best time almost as a label of how good or bad you are in the sport. So a lot of times what happens is people like fixate on like, okay, I need to, you know, run a mile in four minutes or, you know, I need to run the 446 seconds. And they become so like obsessed with like hitting this goal that they start trying to like force this breakthrough, right? And inevitably, anytime you try and force like a performance as you know brett like it backfires right you just don't perform as well and the same thing happens in other aspects of life so you know i see this as how in the world can you um prevent yourself from you know getting in this like obsessed fixated state and instead like put yourself in a position where yeah you're fit enough to do to to you know run really fast or you've done the work in writing it but like you almost have to let the breakthrough come and uh not get so tied up in like trying to uh get this validation that it just backfires it's kind of, would you, and tell me if I'm way off here, but just, I know different people relate to different things and being conscious of the audience and, and different metaphors. I know I learn really well from metaphors or analogies even is it's almost like investing, right? It's like people that try to, you know, they're, they're these day traders and they're trying to get what's the hot tip on wall street. And I'm going to put all my eggs in that basket as opposed to the steady investor that lets, you know, just small compound interest, steady gains over time, you know, really lead to that realization of the true reward, you know, is there, is there synchrony between those, that kind of oh, example? 100%. I mean, I think you nailed it there because think about it. The day trader is way more susceptible to the, these like emotional highs and lows, right? Because he's trying to get this like validation of like, oh, I'm beating, beating the standard. Like I've got the hot tip. Like, you know, I, I am like obsessed and invested in this. 
And what happens, and if you look at, as you probably know, like the research on this stuff, most people do pretty horrible at it versus like a steady, like, hey, put your money in some good index funds or whatever, and like just sit back and, and you know, let it ride the highs and lows. And like, you'll you'll do much better than if you, you know, went all in on uh, obsessing every day on whether your stocks are going up and down. Yeah. Speaking of comparison, I'm feeling kind of self-conscious right now because I feel like when you when you talk, one, it sounds like you've got a better microphone than me, and we've talked about that too, but you're also kind of this mix between a Roman orator and Steve Jobs. Like I'm like, you have a pretty solid command of the English language here, and it, it makes me, uh, I, thank God I have a beard. I still have an edge on you. I, I want to switch gears a little bit and speak more to your guys' process within the research that you do for the books, both with that, what you did for peak performance and for the passion paradox. Now it's clear that you guys really love alliteration specifically of the letter P. Um, but, and on a serious note, there's a lot of just nonsensical research that's being done, you know, in, in a variety of fields. But I think one thing that really separates you guys as authors and why I, I consider myself lucky to, to call you friends is the way you approach research. You don't really do the whole, um, you know, let's go for confirmation bias. Let's only explore one side of this. Let's just act like, you know, there, there's one answer and then give somebody some inspirational habits and here's the book and cut me a check for a TED Talk. It's something that sets your work apart in my mind. Can you both address, and I, Steve, we'll start with you on this one because Brad got the jump on the others. How do you guys approach the research th side of things and what could the listeners maybe learn from you guys in terms of going deep enough down the rabbit hole while also not letting every single nuance kind of consume you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you use the word nuance there because I, I think the way Brad and I look at things is that life is full of, of nuance and we want these black and white answers. So when we're exploring a, a topic, like we want to dive deep enough where we understand the nuance of it, right? We don't just say, oh, passion, like go find it because like it's, it's supposedly a good thing. Like this makes a good story. It sells a lot of books. Like we'll, we'll do this. At the same time, like we try to make sure that we're not those people who get lost in the weeds and can't can't have the practical takeaway because you know as you kind of mentioned research is great and all but like if it doesn't impact our behaviors or our or change what how we think about something then it's really you know it doesn't do anything you know in the in the coaching world you see this all the time it's like oh here's this great study on such and such exercise and it's like well does does that impact how i coach or not because if it doesn't like I mean, that's interesting, but like, it doesn't really matter to me. So when we take a topic, you know, I think what's, what really helps Brad and I is like, we come at it from a couple different angles. I mean, I'm more of a, a science geek and Brad's probably more of a philosophy guy. Um, but we try and take it with an open mind and like do a deep dive on a variety of, of subjects. So it's not just looking at like the scientific research, but we'll, we'll evaluate, you know, uh, famous philosophers or like other people in, in um, disparate fields who have written on, on uh, similar topics so that like we have at least like a, um, a decent understanding of it. You know, if I was to give any advice for your, your audience it's this it's that if you look at any any field right if it's uh if it's coaching football for example like football coaches speak a different language right you have your own like language and nuance that you know if i never coach football like and i showed up for practice i wouldn't understand what the heck you're doing every field has that language so you need to like dive deep enough where you understand like that field's nuance of language but you don't have to become like a uh, incredible expert on all the details you just got to understand what they're talking about that's good to, and that that's exactly what we try to do on the podcast so i appreciate that is in terms of giving tactical advice because we try to avoid this kind of just consumption marathon that people have where they listen to thoughts ideas you know cool at the end of this they, they check out your guys book but they're not really you know, we, we want people to be action oriented. So I think you make a good point. Dive deeply enough to understand, you know, the the language and why the language is a certain way and make sure that you're not just some dilettante, um, you know, but it, so that you can then make sure that it actually impacts your coaching. Brad, how about you? How do you address kind of the research side of it? How do you even get access to some of the research? It seems like Robert Valoran's work was obviously uh, a part of this, given the harmonious and, and, 
uh, passion kind of so nomenclature. Google Scholar, but is a great where where do you even go for access to this stuff? Stuff is just there, and it's open access. And then the stuff that's not open access, yep. um, Steve's affiliation with the University of Houston, we're able to get a lot of that. And then like the super guarded stuff, um, we've got some close friends and mentors that are senior researchers at huge institutions and. Uh, they, I'm not going to name names to get them in trouble, but they're always good to send us a PDF of something we can't access. Um, but Google Scholar is a great, a, a really wonderful starting point. I, I think it's important that everyone understands like how to use search terms. Um, and, and you can just Google like how to use search terms on Google Scholar, because once you can get pretty good with search terms, um, it doesn't take long to narrow in on a body of research. Yeah. So for, for instance, and just um, for the audience a little bit though, can you give me an example of some of those search terms, the relationship between passion and addiction. So rather than typing in the relationship between passion and addiction, because then you're going to get studies on relationships on passion on addiction. Um, you might type in like passion and addiction. If we want to make sure that both those words are in the study or passion or addiction, and then we're going to get addiction and passion studies. Um, so just like having a simple understanding like that saves so much time in, in terms of actually finding meaningful research. Um, yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say then the other thing, like the, the broader thing, um, yeah. And I think that's, oh, sorry, go ahead. Is, and I have to be careful with how I say this because like truth is having a moment, right? Like fake truth, fake news, whatever. But a scientific mind realizes that there are very few things that we know are true, especially in the performance world and in psychology, because like humans are very complex. So if you start with realizing like nothing is, we're very certain that things are 100% true. Like vaccines work 100% true. Um, the climate is changing, not to get political. My guess is that's like 98, 99% true. A lot of stuff in performance is like maybe 70% true. So what Steve and I try to do is we try to look across different areas of research for patterns. Because if we see a similar pattern or a similar theme in psychology, in physiology, in biology, and if football coaches and running coaches and management professors are talking about the same thing, like Steve said, in their own language, but they're all pointing at the same thing, that gives me a higher degree of confidence that this theme is probably true. Versus looking at one study with, like you said, you know, eight individuals in it, that had an interesting finding and saying like, oh, this is the truth. Like bullshit, no, it's not, like show me patterns. Yeah, there's gotta be consistency to it, you know? And that, I think that goes back to even the investing or stock market analogy of, you know, anything can win on any given day, but what you wanna look at is long-term dividends and resilience in the market and everything. Um, so just to encapsulate that, and I want you guys to kind of check me here if I'm wrong, but again, I think it's worth mentioning because it does set you guys apart in terms of the quality of the research you, you provide and everything within the book is, you know, it's, it's a leveraging of understanding how to do proper research, access to the channels, both, both open source and, you know, more, um, I don't want to say secure, but not open access articles through the database. And then also not being afraid to leverage your social capital, which I think is a, an important piece that you mentioned with your friends and uh, that you did the Illuminati at bigger institutions is, you know, most people I think don't realize the access of information they have, should they just reach out for help. And I think I, this is leads into the next point of what I'd like you to touch on, Steve, is because people typically don't ask for help, whether it's, hey, can you locate this article? Or, hey, could you lend some advice? I've gone out on my own. Or, hey, I, you know, I even want to write a book. You know, how can that lead even into the passion paradox and the problems that people face? You know, what? where do we need to drop our pride and start to learn, like, when we find ourselves within this massive imbalance or skew of the spectrum of, uh, you know, obsessive passion and harmonious passion, can asking for help even influence that? Or what can people do? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great skill to have. I mean, and I think, you know, you made the great point is that, because we almost want to like validate ourselves through like expertise and feel like, oh, we have all these answers. A lot of times we don't ask for help. 
right? Because we sit here and think like, oh, you know, uh, Brad or I could sit here and be like, oh, I'm a performance expert. Like people expect me to have, you know, the answers to this. So if I go and ask people like they're going to they're going to be like, oh, who's this fraud or this imposter? And I think that's where it's really important to like free yourself up from that. Like be vulnerable, accept that you don't know everything, that you don't have all the answers. And once you do that, like it, it lets you or allows you to search for the truth, right? To find the answers and, and put the emphasis on like, well, I'm just looking for like the best answer there is. And like, I don't care if this guy thinks I'm an idiot or not. Like I'm just after, after the answer. And, and once you do that and you're free yourself up to like, you'll find that people are really, uh, open and willing to help. I mean, on this book alone, I remember we were trying to find the the origins of the actual word passion, right? Because we knew like, oh, passion of the Christ, like that means suffering. Like it has a different meaning than it back then than it does now. Like how did that, how did we go from like pure suffering in terms of, you know, Jesus and Christ and all that stuff to something that's like seen as like positive? Um we didn't have the re- we, like we tried to do it, you know, half-heartedly ourselves, I guess. But like, I don't have the research ability to look at the, uh, you know, how words evolve beyond like just the dictionary or whatever. So we had to call experts who we had no idea who they were, um, and like, reach out to a bunch until we got you know a couple of email replies and a couple on the phone and you know, hey, can you walk us through this? Here's here's what we're trying to figure out and. You know, these are world-renowned e- researchers on, on that field, and they were more than happy to talk to us. So I think, you know, well, you're going to get your feeling maybe rejected and your feelings hurt a little bit. Like, I think it's it's being vulnerable, allowing yourself to reach out and, and ask for help. And if you do that, like, you're going to get to the, the answer at a much quicker rate versus you toiling away on your computer through Google Scholar or whatever it has you, um, you know, which, you know, is a lot, is sometimes a lot of waste, waste of time. And sometimes you're going to not be able to figure out the answer because like it's above your, uh, your pay grade. And I think you hit on an interesting point there in particular, and and it's relevant here because ironically, I asked you both for help when I was getting ready to write conscious coaching. You know, I was clueless in terms of, you know, what route should I even go, especially after a publisher told me, hey, nobody's going to be interested in in a book on communication and and relating to others, you know, from a, from a strength coach. And I almost felt like a bit of imposter syndrome even asking either of you because one, we didn't know each other. Uh, that well at the time. And then two, I always, my thing with asking for help is I never want to bother people. You know, I always feel like I'm being a bother and that's why I'm so big on reciprocity. And I almost feel bad, you know, if I don't immediately reciprocate in some way, shape or form for somebody. But I remember had I not asked you guys for help, I would have been in trouble. Humor me for a bit on this. And this is just because there's some overlap, I think in our interests, but you mentioned the etymology of the word passion. You know, when I was working on a course recently, what I found, and it seems there's a variety of different ones, Spinoza in 1632, uh, or somewhere within his lifespan between that and 1632 and 1677, it was proposed that acceptable thoughts originated from reason, where unacceptable ones kind of derive from passion, right? There's this passion myth, but wasn't the etymology originally from the Latin word like passio for suffering? You alluded to that. Is Am I correct in that? Or where do you guys differentiate that in your book? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it comes from passio, which is suffering and you nailed it. Like it comes all the way up and is actually kind of fascinating because for the and I might get some of this wrong, but it's in the book. Um um cuz it's not my expertise, <laughs> but like we talked to it. Um but it's it for the first 1000 years or so, like it meant it meant suffering. Like there was very little and and specifically like suffering of Christ. And then it branched out to like suffering in general and then it and then it branched out to like you know um almost like a feelings and a and added this emotional component um to it and shakespeare used it along the way jeffrey chaucer used it along the way and it just kind of branched out and ex- expanded from this purely negative thing to over time and and into i think it was the the 1800s during the romantic era where it adds like this this love component which is when you start first start seeing it 
as like a positive, right? Oh, passionate in this component. But it wasn't until actually, I think the 1950s or 1960s when we started to see like find your passion or follow your passion um, take <laughs> over, which, you know, we uh, we know enough about modern times. You can um, you can probably guess why that occurred. Um but like, <laughs> and since there, it's like expanded and exploded until it's a current state where it's, you know, all the rage, I guess. Right. And what's funny about that, you mentioned with the love thing is <laughs> love and suffering go hand in hand. Van Gogh cut off his ear for uh, a love interest. Right. And so there's an example of suffering, but like passion, passion isn't always good for you. And it doesn't mean that you're going to find something that you're inherently good at. Brad, my remedial understanding of when I was trying to make sense of the research that Valorant had done and, and kind of what you guys touch on in the book is that, you know, when I was trying to distinguish obsessive passion, harmonious passion to me, and again, I want you to correct me here. I always kind of understood it, or at least I, I took it as if the activity controls the person, you're looking at obsessive passion to a degree. But if the person can, can control the activity, then it's a little bit more of the harmonious passion. How I know that's super simplified and, and just trying to whittle it down. But where am I at with that? No, can you can you teach me a bit more? more to teach you? You're like a hundred percent there. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Like what what we write in the book is: Do you control your passion, or does your passion control you? Um, and I think that, like, I think you hit the nail on the yeah. head. Now, obviously, like where the rubber meets the road is, it's one thing to say, "Well, control your passion so it doesn't control you." And it's, it's another thing to intellectually understand it. Yeah. And it's a whole other thing to actually do it, like to practice it. Um, and that's the work. Yeah. Uh, but that's it. Like in a nutshell, that's it. If you've got control over your passion and you're not craving and you're not in a cycle of craving or needing or always wanting or desiring, you're in great shape. Um, yeah. It's such, it's so weird how it evolves too though, right? Like I know, just speaking to a personal failure. And, and since I have two experts kind of on the line here, I'd be interested in your take on this. I remember when I, when all I was doing was predominantly just being a strength coach, right? I'd, I'd write programs, I'd go out and coach, you know, and that was really the only things I had to worry about. The thing I was most passionate about other than coaching was, you know, just a training side of it, even my own, like just, you could get after it. It was this feeling of elation when, uh, whenever you're working with others or training yourself and, you know, you could get really, really into it. Now, as a business owner and a coach and a speaker and an author, although nowhere the likes of, of you guys, but managing these other things, I've had a hard time controlling, you know, I never, I hate desk work. I hate it, but I do have a passion for seeing something grow. And right now a business that conveys a message, right? Like this message of, hey, communication and relating is important. It's been kind of thrown around in coaching, but nobody's ever really dug in. I want to do it, but I've had it pull me almost apart from you know, there, there's nights where it's 930 and I haven't gotten my own training in. And I'm sitting here and I told my wife the other night, it's funny. I go, nothing would ever get in the way of my training. But now I feel like I have this mission and I'm passionate about it with the business. But I like, I just get distracted so easily between the two. It's almost like two lovers and, and they're both, they're both humiliating to a degree. They're both intoxicating to a degree. They're both infuriating to a degree. Like, is, is that common? I mean, do you get to a point in life where now your passions are no longer even singular? It's, it's deciding between them and being able to prioritize. Yeah. I'll let Steve take this one. Um, but I just want to comment. I, I know how to get you back on track. And what listeners might not know is that Brett, um, writes my programming for me and he sees this spreadsheet and it's not going to be long before I'm putting up more weight than Brett. And, and, and that's going to be a kick in the you know what to get to get. To get uh, yeah. <laughs> nice. Yes, if you want to, yeah. if you want to get me back on track, well, just has fun spotting more than Brett. I still got like seven hundred yeah. pounds to go, but I'm working my way up there. Um, it is true, man. It, it's kind of like Billy Madison, where I'm sitting there, and uh, who was it? It was uh, the character that's got the lipstick, and he's crossing names off the list. I sit there and look at your PR sheet, and every time it climbs five to ten pounds. I just cross off another name as I get closer to Brad Stolberg. Uh, jokes aside, Steve, uh, and I know I probably didn't explain what I was talking about well, but would you mind? Yeah, up sure. hundred percent. I mean, I, I think that's the thing is like for people like yourself, who's obviously a pusher and most, most coaches are, are, are pushers as well. Like we like to get things done. Like we're not content. 
Um, that's relatively normal, I think, at least in my world. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Like, there's a huge benefit to being able to like go all in almost and like be doing all this work until it's like 930 and you step back and you're like, oh man, it's 930. Like where'd the day to go? I didn't even get to do this other thing that I love to do. And I think that the key there is that's not a bad thing as long as you're aware you're making that choice, right? So if that happened for for months on end and you didn't get your training in and now your your health is going down, then it becomes a bad thing. But if you're saying, hey, like I'm launching this this business or I'm really in crunch time to promote it and like this has to take preference over everything else um, and your training goes by the wayside a little bit, that's okay as long as you can like step back and, and, and come, you know, and uh, come back to it at all. I mean, it's almost like you're uh, you've got to get really good at being aware and prioritizing where that that passion goes. Right? I'm the I'm the same. Like at certain points, like I'm all in on my coaching, right? And I'm just going crazy on it, and my training gets neglected. Or during launch week of a book, like it's everything else gets neglected. And I make that now, like I make that choice and say, all right, everything else is going to get neglected. That's all right. But a lot of times I'll set time frames for like how long this can happen before I've got to get back to where it's like, okay, like this other thing that I really value in my life, like I got to, I got to give it some love too. Yeah, and I love that you touch on that within the book, this idea that there's this illusion of living a perfectly balanced life and, you know, really passion coupled with self-awareness trumps that balance any day. You know, what I tell people, and I, I said it to the listeners and in, in the courses, you know, I look at it as there's no such thing as balance. What there are, are seasons, mm -hmm. right? Just like there's in-season, off-season, there's different periods within athletics and, and even within the corporate world, right? They have first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth, like there's all these different pushes they have to make. And the way, and, and you could almost look at this as like, well, you're giving yourself an out. But what I've looked at it is, hey, I'm in, uh, you know, essentially year two or three of, of starting my own business. What I've told my wife is what I've got to come to terms with is right now, like, I'm not going to be hitting PRs myself in the gym. I'm basically in season. It's the playoffs. You know, I'm trying to get somewhere, you know, really locked in. And since it's just me, I'm the quarterback, the wide receiver, or if you want, I'm the pitcher and the outfielder in the middle so I've almost tried giving myself permission of being like, hey, dude, you know what? Some days you're not going to be able to train the way you want and get under the load that you want. Some days you're going to have to work out. The distinction between the two being training, you have this specified goal, right? And working out, meaning you're basically, you're moving, right? You're trying to get some stuff done. You're lifting or running, whatever your uh, you know proclivity is, but it's not necessarily like you're not out there like getting ready for a competition. You're just kind of checking the box. And I have had to accept that. I've had to say, you know what? I'm always going to train with intention. I'm always going to have a clear goal, but I'm not always going to be able to push it the same way that I did when I had nothing else to worry about. And that that's part of the passion paradox too, right? People just letting go of this idea that they always have to be all the way up or all the way down or that perfect balance exists. Talk to me a little bit more about how your book touches on that in particular and how it can help those pushers out there as you term it. Brad, yeah. sorry. Oh, <laughs> I always, I, like, what I really want, it's like the Joker in the Dark Knight. I'm going to give you guys a stick and <laughs> let you fight over who's going to, you know, talk. Brad, go ahead, hit this one, bud. You're training me, man. I'm going to win. I'm getting strong. Um, no, I love, I love joking with Fred about this because I'm not actually that strong. But um, I, um, I think that uh, you've got really good insight into that. And, and balance is an illusion. Our culture sets us up to think that we can be great at everything. I'm yeah, be it really the, does. I'm going to be the best lifter. I'm going to be the best business owner. I'm going to be the best husband. I'm going to be the best coach. I'm going to be the best writer. No, you're not. You're going to be mediocre at all of those things and really sad because you're going to be judging yourself for failing across the board. So the paradox there is like, nope, that kind of balance makes no sense. What makes sense is like you said, to have a season, to go all in on something, and then to be aware that you're doing it so that you can make trade-offs. And when the time comes to switch, go all in on something else. So balance is great over the course of a lifetime. Balance in any given day or week, eh, not as great. 
especially not if you're trying to do like eight things really well. Uh, really hard to do. Like, I think that you can do one thing really well at a time. And, and, and I'm so glad that you mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned your wife a few times. And it's so important when people are pushers to talk to the important people in their lives and to set expectations about what's going on. Uh, you know, I say maybe one thing because I think that like you can do family and something else so long as you give family um, some clear expectations so that there's not resentment going on. And you have to, you know, kick yourself in, 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 in where it hurts a few times and get your shit together if it's going over. Like a great example of that is I've got a one-year-old at home. And, you know, Steve mentions like, book launch, everything else gets neglected. I can neglect everything else but Theo. And my wife the other day, like she gave it to me straight. Like she needed 10 minutes in the morning so she could get ready before taking him to daycare. And I was at the computer working on book launch stuff. And like Theo was kind of like at the other side of the room, not being so happy. And she came in and she's like, practice what you preach. And like, I'm like, you're right. Like I shut down the computer and I went over to be with him. Um, so I, I guess I share that story because like, again, it's hard. That's the thing about passion. Like you get swept up into it and it's easy to just forget about everything else. Um, so it's real important to maintain that self-awareness. And a great way to do it is to talk to someone that you love and make sure that they're there to give you that kick in the junk when you need it. Uh, because, you know, we like to think that like self-awareness is all about ourselves. But one great way to get self-awareness is actually to have people that you trust call you out when you kind of lose it. Um, that can be really helpful. Yeah, I think that is something that we could dive into in a whole nother podcast of getting people around you that can call you out and kind of be these regulators, right? These people that, because I think that that even for me is something that has led into a passion paradox of my own is I expect myself not only to be everything, but I try to be everything that I view other people aren't. And I think really where that started when I've done some reflecting was in high school. You know, I just had some friends that were really flaky. And I remember what that felt like. I remember what that felt like to like make a commitment, have a plan. You know, I'm somebody that's, I'm pretty excitable. And then people just back out. And it never made sense to me how some people could do that in all kinds of commitments in life and never kind of feel any thing. You know, it's just kind of whatever. Like for me, if I tell you guys or anybody I'm going to do something and I don't do that, that keeps me up at night. And the next day I'm trying to make that right. You know, and I think having, finding friends that say, Hey dude, like you don't have to be all things to everybody. And having some people that kept me in check and Brad, you've been one of them just saying, Hey, you know, I've told you in the past and I've admitted on this podcast, you know, our field doesn't really do a good job with the whole money thing, right? So I was stretching myself thin, trying to appease everybody. I'd answer every DM. I'd do this. I've talked about this plenty on the podcast. And you were like, hey, dude, you need to really quit worrying about charging for your time. Like there, there's always going to be people that are going to bitch about stuff. You know, you're a professional. Professionals charge for their time. Like let her rip. You know what I mean? And people that really value your work are going to have no trouble doing that. And you almost said it in a way like I've been very defensive of my field being like, yeah, but you don't get it. It's a very unique field. And you said it in kind of this matter of fact, I don't give a fuck yeah. way. Like this is just the reality of the situation. And I told my wife, I was just like, dude, like I didn't call my wife, dude, but I said, Liz, I go, I go, Brad said something and it was just like kind of really concrete, pure and almost rushed, but like so impactful. And I have quit apologizing that. I'm like, hey, this is what it is. This is my time. It's valuable. I'd be happy to pay for your time as well if you need the advice, you know, if you if you ask for this. Um, and so you were a huge help there and you were an example of that friend. Steve, is there anybody kind of professionally or personally in your life that has really helped you kind of overcome your own, you know, form of the passion paradox or has even made you a little bit more aware of it? Yeah, at times? I mean, one of those is Brad. I guess he does that for everybody. But like, <laughs> he, he, you know, as, as co-authors on a couple books now, like, he keeps us in check, right? He keeps me in check where if, you know, I'm, uh, you know, not doing what I'm supposed to or I'm drifting off and like paying attention too much to this thing or going down the, the weeds of like being uh, especially like, you know, all in on uh, social media and like on my computer and all that stuff, like he'll call me out. But at the same time, like I think what is really good is like at several times, like I've told Brad like, hey. I've got this going on and like I'm I probably won't respond to anything you send me on like book stuff because like I do not have the bandwidth to like go over this and he's 
totally is like, all right, got it. Like you're good. Right. And that's the power of like that friendship there. And, you know, I've got a, a couple other friends, um, who are similar to that, who will call me on stuff or, you know, even in the coaching world, right. Where you're responsible for, you know, athletes development and all that stuff is like, the, it's great to have someone call you out and be like, Hey, Steve, like, you know, I, you might not be aware of this, but like, you know, you've, you've kind of slacked off in like this aspect of coaching. Right. And that happens. Like we're all human. Like I'm not, I'm not some perfect coach who's gonna, you know, design everything and like communicate in the best way, even though I've read Brett's books or book, um, like I'm not going to be perfect all the time. And like, I'm human and I'm going to mess that up. But to have people, uh, who will call that out is fantastic. And I think part of that is like, on me as a person, like if someone calls me out and says like, Hey, you're really sucking at this, or you're really not doing a good job of this. Like my reaction can't be the human reaction of like defensiveness and being like, Oh man, like, yeah, I am. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm doing this great. Cause if I do that, as soon as I do that, then that sends a signal to my friend that like, Oh man, like don't bring, don't bring up any criticism to Steve because like, he's not going to respond well. And then if, if that happens, like I don't get a, a true view of the world, which is uh, you know, a problem. Yeah, you know, I think you answered that beautifully. Guys, is there anything else that you think just offhand that people get wrong about passion? Now, granted, the whole book is about this, so don't feel the need to like, you know, go into that because I want to make sure. And by the way, you know, where where can people find this book? Where can where can they access it? What forms can they access it in? I just want to make sure this is clear for everybody. Yeah, thanks for asking, Brett. So um, right now we're recording this podcast and I'm not sure when you're going to drop it. So uh, the book is coming out in like two weeks from when we're recording this. Uh, so if you drop the podcast now and listeners are listening, you can pre-order the book uh, from Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, as well as your local bookstore. And then if you're listening to this, once the book has come out, um, same thing, you can get it anywhere. So it's online, it's at local bookstores. Um, it is on audiobook and on Kindle. Uh, although I must say, I recommend the hardcover because there are uh, passion practices at the end of each chapter. And I think that feedback I got from the first book that Steve and I did was that people really like being able to go back to those things. Um, yeah, go ahead, Brett. Yeah. And and this book will drop, people are listening, they will listen to this on, it'll be March 18th by all the time you guys are tuning in. So um, they'll, they'll have a chance to pre-order it still, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it comes out March 19th. So by then, just get the book, you know, go to your bookstore, um, or at least consider getting and, the book. And we have some really cool uh, bonuses if you buy it, or if you pre-order it or get it, I think on launch day. And you can check that out at our uh, website, which is uh, www.passionparadoxbook.com. Um, you do that or reach out or look at us on, on Twitter, which I'm at Steve Magnus spreads at B Stolberg. Um, and we have some cool giveaways just, you know, that complement the book as well. Yeah. And the, all these things are going to be included in the show notes. So you, those of you that listen regularly, you know, the deal, you won't have to worry about getting a notepad or anything like that. Just go to the show notes. Um, this is also, if you're on my newsletter at art of coaching, you're going to have a direct access to this. The Amazon link's going to be there. If you're not on the newsletter, really don't know at this point in time what you're waiting for. Get um, on I understand the newsletter. Get on the newsletter. Get on the newsletter. <laughs> you're, you're, get, you're getting um, Brett's wisdom for free. Yeah, Told him to make there you go, bro. time. Get on that newsletter. <laughs> um, no, you know what else you're going to add there, Brad? It's funny because we always end these conversations, you know, buy the book. Here's where you can find us. Here's the giveaways. Uh, get on the newsletter. And it can feel kind of ironic because we're talking about like passion and not being too external. Um, so I think it's real important to come back to the fact that like, yeah, like, of course I want you to read the book. I worked really fucking hard on it. Steve did too. It's our best work. Uh, and we think it can help you. Um, and, and, and I think like, that's, what's, that's, what's so great about our friendship, Brett, and being on this podcast in your community is that like, yeah, like, of course we want to do well. That's the paradox. And like, it's really neat to be contributing to these evolving conversations on things like communication on things like passion on things like burnout, um, because it's important. And like, I know that I've made so many mistakes that are all, in, are all in my work. 
And if I can help people, you know, sidestep a few of those, then great job. Well done. Yeah, without a question. And, and that's, I mean, that's its own paradox, right? Like even like everybody in this field, whether it's executives, whether it's athletes, whether it's coaches, and, and I define coaches, anybody that really is leading. If you're, if you're connecting with people, educating, communicating your coach, it's funny. That's a passion paradox element in and of itself, right? Everybody's got this desire to learn and we've got to take in as much information. So I hope everybody heard what they said. When you get the hard cover version of the book, you actually have these tactical exercises. Like I cannot, I cannot say this enough. We no longer live in the information age. You live in the transformation age, meaning like you have to put skin in the game. You have to do some shit to actually make this make sense. So the one thing I challenge all of you listening not to do is do not just get this book, read it, listen to it, whatever, throw it in a corner and be done with it. Like take the next step, go through the exercises and then make sure if it brought you value, tell somebody about the damn book. Like, you know, and and Brad's right. It, it takes skin in the game and it's hard. Guys, anything I miss that you want to touch on briefly and leave these folks with? Uh, no, I mean, all I would say is thanks for having us on the show. And then um, as you alluded to, like I'm super fortunate to be your friend. Uh, I know a lot about mental performance. I don't know much about programming. Brett coaches me. So like, it's just really nice to be in this conversation, sharing some of my work. Um, so a big uh, smiling ear to ear. And I've got my, my Zen hands in the, the prayer <laughs> position. A big thank you for all that you do for the, the performance community. Yeah. I'll just yeah, echo that. I, I think it's awesome that you're doing this podcast. I think it's amazing uh, the resources you got coming out. And I'm not just saying that because I've listened to it and then I've read your book, I think twice now. Um, and, and that's, that's what's cool is like people in this community are like putting information out there, helping us all get better. And as you said, like the information is all, all here and available now. And it's like up to us to decide like how good we want to be at what we do. And, and, and most of that is in taking action on that information. So just thanks for putting out information that, that I take action on. So it's, uh, it's awesome. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Everybody else, again, check the show notes, check the links. Um, everything will be linked for you guys and reach out to these people. They, uh, Brad and C both have a tremendous amount of knowledge and they're gracious folks. We need more of them like, in the, uh, like them in the community. Guys, thanks again. 